Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Brattleboro, your community radio station streaming online at wvew.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, on iTunes at Indigo Radio, replaying every week Thursday at 4 p.m. The views of this show are those of the guests and hosts, not of the radio station. Indigo Radio is a group of educators seeking to understand, oh, seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. Um, today we're talking about the issue of housing and how housing is a part of public health. Um, we often talk about healthcare and without really discussing the ways in which having our basic needs met is a necessity to be healthy. And so the question is, what is um, public health and how is housing a part of public health and meeting people's basic needs, which isn't happening. I know for me, often as a single mom, I'm like, I'm thinking like, I was at the risk of losing my job this year. And one of the concerns is how do you take care of your family when you don't have an income and you're struggling to make ends meet? Um, so we'll be talking about that in the studio we have with us, Anna Mulaney on the board. Good morning. <laughs> and Josh Davis. Good morning. And who else is this with us today? This is August Davis. Hi, Yay. August. Um, and later on in the program, we'll have Susan Blankley, who's a housing organizer in New York City. So we're going to go to our first song. What's our first song, Anna? The first song that we're going to play is a song by David Ruffin um, called Where We Used to Stay. So we're going to play that, and we'll be right back with Josh Davis and to talk about public health and housing. Indigo Radio. Thank you. Make it all right If you let me Make it all right Oh, I know I can Make it all right If you let me, baby
All right. Welcome back. This is Anna for Indigo Radio. And um, just a little bit of uh, correction. That was David Ruffin, where we used to stay. Or sorry, we were supposed to play that one, but we um, played a different one because this morning I was getting ready for the radio show and I was listening to David Ruffin, so it went on to the next song. So that was Just Let Me Hold You for a Night. Also a great song by David Ruffin, uh, but the wrong song. So we are talking about housing as a public health issue, and we're happy to have Josh Davis, who's the executive director of Groundworks Collaborative, here with us. And before we get to him, I just want to um, give a little information. There was a 2016 report that has been going around lately where um, they found that there were four evictions filed every minute in the United States, States which is about uh, 6,300 Americans evicted every day across the nation. And this includes both rural and urban. I think oftentimes people think of urban centers, but it's also happening in rural areas. And that pertains definitely to us here in Brattleboro. When it comes to homelessness on any given night, according to the Housing and Urban Development, which is HUD, as many as 550,000 people experience homelessness. And that means literally on the streets. Um, and the estimates are, are hard because it's a transient population, but that's about the number. And to break down that a little bit, 40,000 veterans on any given night, and I was thinking about how that could be a whole show on itself, is talking about veterans uh, and homelessness and, and health. Close to 40% nationwide uh, are black, and which is an overrepresentation. 60% men, 40% women, and 22% are children. So um, those are some numbers there on homelessness. So we're going to go to uh, Josh and Michaela here. And Josh, can you introduce yourself and tell us about the work you're doing in Brattleboro? Sure. So thanks for having me here this morning. I know Rihanna was scheduled to be here and couldn't make it, and hopefully you're able to have her again in the very near future. And so the work that we do at Groundworks, uh, we have specifically around uh, services for folks experiencing homelessness. Uh, we have a, a seasonal shelter that we operate that is coming near its end for this season. We're going to be open till the end of April. Oh, wow. And so we're one of the longest, we're open one of the longest in the state, and I'm really happy that we are given the very uh, slow transition that we're having to spring here. Uh, most of the other seasonal shelters in the state are closing on the 15th, 16th, oh, so wow. they're closing tomorrow. Um, then we have a, a year-round shelter, uh, formerly Morningside Shelter, where we serve individuals as well as families with children. And then we have a day shelter. And so folks can uh, come to the day shelter and get resources, take a shower, have their mail sent there, connect with a case manager. We provide case management services uh, to help people uh, in all sorts of housing um, needs, whether they are housed or they're looking for housing or just uh, new to the service community and getting connected to services. And so we see what you're talking about with the evictions. Evictions definitely happen here in Brattleboro. And the market is so tight here. You know, rents are really high. Most of the units, you know, there's really a handful of landlords that we work with. And so not only is it traumatic for the person experiencing uh, the eviction uh, to go through that process, but also it's such a tight network that once somebody does experience that, it's very difficult to get back into a unit. Oh, wow. So yeah, because everyone knows fallout, everyone. Exactly. 
and, and people talk to each other. You know, it's a small town. And so a lot of the work that we do is working with landlords uh, and advocating on, on behalf of people. Uh, we've, quote unquote, guaranteed certain elements of the rental process. And so for working with the state, we're able to vendor rent directly to landlords. So really to mitigate some of that risk. Hmm. And then also with the case management services. Is there eviction court here? Uh, it goes through the courts. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It is a legal process. It's an expensive legal process. Hmm. And so if we're working with folks that are going through that, um, you know, we do our best to support the people that we work with. We also are, understand that it's a small community of landlords. So to the extent that we can, we work uh, as well as we can with the landlords. Mm -hmm. But understand that sometimes we have competing priorities. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. I think you touched on it is that people that when we're thinking about this nationwide, people who have an eviction on their record, then it's even harder for them to find housing and Absolutely. quality housing. And then oftentimes they're pushed into substandard housing Absolutely. that, of course, is going to affect their lives in lots of different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that so there's this book that I just read uh, called Eviction, and it's by Matthew Desmond, who's a, a sociology professor at Princeton. And he wrote this book. It came out in 2016, and it was his work when he was a graduate student in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And he spent two years um, looking at evictions and homelessness and the impact on families and individuals. And I think that... Uh, one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have is that people who are maybe evicted or are living in a homeless shelter are not working. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that of how that plays out in Brattleboro, because I know a lot of people that do have jobs and sometimes even more than one job, yet they can't pay for housing. Absolutely. Uh, we definitely have people in the shelter that are working and... Uh, very often working more than just one job. Uh, with the, the pay, you really can't afford, I think, the housing wage. So what's the hourly wage that you need to make to afford housing in this community? I think the latest stat that I've seen is that's over $20 an hour. Yeah, it's like f almost $50,000 a year, something like that. Upper, yeah, it's a high. It's really high. And so if you think about the jobs that are available to folks, especially if you don't have education, um, really wages are, are hovering around minimum wage and it just takes so much uh, work to put that together to actually be able to afford housing. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to mention the other expenses that people are trying to pay for as well. Food and then transportation is key. I can't emphasize like how much transportation affects people's lives in this community mm -hmm. because to do anything you need to have that car and ready access to transportation. So you're going to work. You need to have that ready access to transportation, mm -hmm. even if it's across <laughs> town. We do have public transportation in Brattleboro, um, but it's a very limited schedule. It's very difficult to, for the public transportation to fit into your life so that you don't have to spend all day just going across town for uh, an appointment at the hospital. Yeah, mm -hmm. That can take hours just given the bus schedule. Yeah. And so yes. if you have something that comes up, a competing expense, you're talking about health care and homelessness as a public health issue. If there's anything that comes up with somebody's health care, 
where they're not able to have that addressed directly or they're having to spend money on that as opposed to transportation or you have a car bill that comes up, you need a repair on your car because you're driving an old car because mm-hmm. you can't afford a better quality vehicle, Yeah. then you're having to make choices there. Yeah. And a lot of times the choice is, well, I can't afford to pay rent. Right. And so you get behind in rent thinking, oh, well, I'll skip it this month. I'll take care of my car. I'll get back on my feet. I'll get on work. And it's just a really um, precarious game that people play and are forced to play. And then they get behind in their rent, and, yeah. which starts to lead towards eviction. I saw this a lot uh, working at the Women's Freedom Center in town. So the Freedom Center is the local domestic and sexual violence organization. And we, when we could, would provide rides for women. Yep. Um, and we do continue to do that at times when we're able to. But of course, we have a limited budget for that. I'm sure you understand this working at Groundworks. And I definitely saw many times where transportation was the key in which someone didn't make an appointment or their interactions with, say, the welfare office. They were supposed to get to an appointment. They didn't get there. Economic services wasn't be out of, or they didn't provide a ride or whatever. And then they're given a mark on their record because they didn't make this appointment. Absolutely. And um, so there's a, a lot of uh, these ripple effects around housing that is really important to think about. And uh, the same report that I was looking at and goes to Josh, what you were saying is that one in four Americans um, pay 70% uh, on rent. And it's supposed to be what, 30. 30? Yeah, you're supposed to pay 30 for housing. So if you think about that. Affordable. Yeah, it's supposed to be affordable. Yeah. Right. If you think 70%, and that cuts in, right, to transportation, to food, to medications, to other essential needs that people need and their money can't go to just because they're trying to pay the rent. Absolutely. And, and on the flip side of that, what we see is housing is the, the cornerstone or the linchpin of a healthy life. Mm. And so if you don't have the housing and you're needing the medical care, where do you recover? How do you recover? Uh, mm-hmm. Keeping your family together just in terms of relationships and the stress that you're under when you don't have housing. I mean, housing is really important in terms of bringing stability into somebody's life. And so this, you know, starts to this conversation starts to branch out even into what we're talking about in terms of uh, people on the street asking for money and the opioid epidemic that's going on in this community and other communities throughout the country and not seeing housing as the cornerstone, as the linchpin to help unlock some of these and even really entrenched issues and quality housing. I feel like when I was looking for an apartment in Brattleboro, I saw some places that I was like, um, "Is this even legal?" <laughs> yeah, can uh, can someone should someone live here? <laughs> and they are rented. You know, absolutely. You know, so it's um, it's it's such a tight market here. It's less than one percent vacancy rate, which a healthy vacancy rate is between four and six percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's really a, a renters market, not a a renter's market, not yeah. a renter's market. Yeah. And so that drives up prices that also is less uh, compelling for a landlord to really have a quality unit. Yeah. Like, and they're, yeah, it's amazing. I think that housing is so important. And so many of the young people that I see in schools are housing insecure, uh, are couch surfers yes. or have moved around. Um, that's one of the, arguments actually for having standardized curriculum is because we have a lot of housing insecure students who move from town to town. Even so from their here. experience would be the same if they're in school in Brattleboro. Right. That's what, they're, that's what their hope is. And that, yeah. you know, that's another discussion. But so it's interesting. So kids from Putney who end up in Guilford or they in, they're into relatives' houses and then they're in Brattleboro. And so I've met kids who've been to almost every school. Oh. 
because they just housing insecurity. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, on the flip side of that, I, I would like to say in this community, we do have landlords that work really well with us. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to paint the picture that landlords are always the, the bad folks in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I would go back to what I say, just in competing agendas sometimes. Right. You know, landlords are, are trying to make money. They are sympathetic. We do have some landlords in this community that are very sympathetic to the work that we're doing and, right. and really work with us, even despite experiences that don't work out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Josh, but we could also say and respect those people and say there shouldn't be landlords. <laughs> right. <laughs> because property shouldn't be, not be privately mm-hmm. owned. Yeah. That's a personal belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes back to this piece of like the privatization of things as opposed to rights. I mean, you know, housing right. is a right. Everybody needs housing. You right. know, we, you know, I have to say it's been on my mind all weekend, this situation that's going on with Syria. Mm-hmm. What happened on Friday night where the United States launched a number of of missiles into that country, you know, each one of those missiles is uh, tens of thousands of dollars. We're making a choice as a country, as a community. Homelessness is not cancer. Homelessness is, there's not a mystique around how do we, un, like, how do we undo homelessness? We know how to do it. Mm-hmm. It's housing. Mm-hmm. And so if we make political choices to put our resources into housing, we have, mm-hmm. you know, housing stock and we have subsidies and we put people into that housing and right. it works. And there's so many empty uh, places around town also, is that we, we have We were just talking places. about this with yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. I was curious, um, just because of the, my work background at the Women's Freedom Center, and so I know a little bit about this with women, but can you at all speak to uh, gender and what you see around that and homelessness? Sure. Um, you know, so it's across the board. When, when we're looking at, at families, we work with a lot of, of mothers with young children. And so, you know, that is really difficult if you think about, you know, I have uh, young children, my, my wife and I do. August is here with us today. If we weren't together, I can't imagine, um, you know, having three kids and a mother trying to, to figure out all the different pieces that it would take to, mm-hmm. to get back into housing and to afford housing yeah. in this community. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, on the same respect of that, just to play the other side a little bit, we have a number of programs by the state that are set up for women and young families. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of men at the drop-in center. We have a lot of folks that uh, need housing that there aren't particular programs set up for them. This idea that if you are a male below the age of 60, you should be able to work and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so, you know, we often focus uh, the conversation on women, but I think at times we, uh, we leave out this other big piece of uh, a whole set of folks that there aren't really a ton of programs set up for them. And so we have uh, programs like Shelter Plus Care, but you need a diagnosis of uh, mental health illness mm-hmm. to qualify for that. Mm. And so if you're not, if you don't have a diagnosis that reaches the level that qualifies you for this program, but yet you are not able to maintain a job, you're kind of out of luck. Mm-hmm. And so it's really tough that we have, you know, I was at the drop-in center this morning, and we have uh, just a number of people that are hanging out that there really are no supports for them. Yeah. Yeah, and I know working at the Women's Freedom Center, the hardest people for us to house were single women. Uh-huh. Um, but I know that across the board, when we talk about in terms of evictions, it's single women with children because children 
um, there's more noise complaints or there um, people are landlords are seeing kids as damaging things, that sort of thing. But I think what you bring up is a good point of based on your particular identity or who you are, it's going to impact um, certain ways in which you get housing and impact what um, subsidy programs are available to uh -huh. you. And that's why single, well, I was working with women at the Freedom Center, really hard to house uh, yeah. single women with no job because they didn't have any kind of um, income to get the subsidy in which you need a little bit in order to actually get a voucher, most of these vouchers. But this actually, I don't know that it's identity based about men, women, or children. Actually, I feel like we are focusing on that because that's the way we're divided when you're giving resources. Like, uh -huh. you know, if you're going to have welfare, you can't have a man in the home. And so now we're on the other side of that and we're playing into that. The mm -hmm. reality is that the system, the capitalist system is set up this way for people to not have their needs met. And uh -huh. so I don't know that we have to take a scalpel to like who is not getting housing. The reality is that it's going to be people on the bottom and that's how it's set up. And the question is, how do we raise each other up uh -huh. for me? You know, how do we uh -huh. engage um, regardless of background? Because the reality also is that there are people who would fancy themselves part of the middle class sleeping in their cars. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's real mm -hmm. all over this country. That's not, and they're getting up and going to work. People sleeping on trains and getting up and going to work. So, um, and at that point, it doesn't matter what their background is. It's that that's a real struggle. That's a grind that I know I can't understand. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I have a relatively good job in this town and personally have very little safety net and you know i am symptomatic of of everything of a lot of people's experience in this country that we just don't have many safety nets so if somebody loses their job if they have a health issue all of us are just teetering and so you're right we spend so much of our time in service industry because we are filling out HUD forms, we, we break it down by demographic and we, we split these monies between these particular groups. But the fact of the matter is we have uh, many, many more than people that are experiencing homelessness that are teetering on the edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember being a kid and at home, I lived in, grew up in San Francisco and I was reading a pap newspaper or something and it, it said, uh, most families are one paycheck away from homelessness. And then I thought about it. My mother was, always shared finances with me. So I knew how much the rent was. I knew how much she made. And I thought, I was like, wow, that's true. Like, I, we true. all depend on my mom. Hmm. And if something happened, we would she be needs to keep SOL. Going to work yeah. Every week. <laughs> she needs that paycheck coming in. So I was like, week. and I was like, whoa. And, and thinking about all the, the choices that you make, because for her, our, at that point in time, the schools around us weren't so good. So she spent money on sending me to private school. So that was her safety net. Uh-huh. You know, uh -huh. that if she had one, it would be that money that she paid for our schooling. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, like that was profound to me. So if that is all of our experiences or a lot, like a majority of people that are in this country that we're one paycheck away from literal homelessness. And then a conversation like panhandling comes up in this community mm -hmm. and, and the community at large doesn't see themselves in the panhandlers. They see the panhandlers as somebody different. And... I just don't know how that is. And it's something that I really struggle in this conversation. I don't have the answers about how we deal with the issue, but I think the answers are going to come from inclusion and talking to people that are actually having this experience of being on the street 
it's not going to come from pushing people off the street, hiding them away, hiding it away. It just comes up somewhere else and it it presents itself in another way. It doesn't actually deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. But this idea that we are, we don't see ourselves in that. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do understand. It's that it's a foreign body. It's intrusive. It's gonna ruin my day. It ruins the landscape. It's so pretty. I feel like Vermonters are also on about like it's so beautiful and picturesque. I don't want some homeless person ruining my vision. When I go to the co-op, I just brought my kombucha and <laughs> stay. At, you know what I mean? I'm going to be zen. Don't ask me for money. Um, and the idea that other humans are threatening. And I know that anytime I have that thought, I check myself. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, things do happen. Like, it's, it's a possibility. There is such a thing as humans hurting other humans, as we know. U.S. government is dropping bombs on Syria. However, that is not the majority of your interactions with other humans. Right. So if you see someone who's having a hard time, I don't know why that's the first thing that comes on our mind, that we're going to be attacked either physically or emotionally in some way. Right. Um, and... I remember, I never say sorry, because I remember this guy asked me for money, and I was like, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. And he was like, don't be sorry. And, like, he just was, like, went off. And I was thinking, like, yeah, like, my, even if I'm not going to give someone money, because I don't feel comfortable, or whatever my reason is, Uh I don't want to dig in my pockets, um, my job is to look at that person and say no, or say whatever I'm going to say uh-huh. in the eye, and because that's another human being, and yeah. not ignore them, and not pretend like they're not there, but to see that people are poor, and uh-huh. people are struggling. struggling. And to ask them, how are they doing? Yeah. I feel I've, I've made a more practice of that, just uh, to say hello, uh-huh. and to not ignore, because I, I think we're all challenged by that, of, oh, what do, we, what do we do, what do we say, I can't give, you know, all that kind of thing. Don't make eye contact, look down. Right. right, and I agree, we need to, like, humanize people, and they're completely dehumanized, and I think this thing around opioids also is uh, a leap to also just assume, oh, everyone who's panhandling is also using drugs, um, or using that money for drugs. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that that's our role, to be deciding what, that money is going to um, not your business. what they're using it for. And the reality is so many people in our community, probably at, your, at my job or at anyone's job, are suffering sometimes with addiction and we don't know it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so who are we to judge any human that's suffering through that? We don't, we don't know their story. So if you're giving something, then you just give it and not thinking that, not passing judgment on what, people are going to do with the money i i know i struggle with that at first too like oh do you give money they might i'm like well who i know a lot of people who i know who shouldn't be drinking <laughs> right and i'm not right. like at their house like ooh, close off the soap supermarket so-and-so can't have a drink <laughs> exactly like, i can't that's right it's not my business right that's right right uh josh before we leave here yeah. um we're gonna go to a song and then we're gonna be talking with Susanna in new york city but is there anything else you want to add and you can feel free to stay too oh yeah you can also stay i can stay as long as uh, <laughs> august is uh yeah his patience is uh, wearing thin maybe but august um, you're welcome to say hi if you no you- i just think that these are really vital conversations that we're having mm-hmm. and and taking these dominant frames and disrupting them and and looking at it these are huge complex social issues um, but I really just applaud the work that you're doing. I think in terms of, of panhandling, in terms of people experiencing homelessness, uh, figuring out ways for them to participate in the process, 
uh, and a way for them to have a voice in, in any sort of measure that's going on uh, is crucial. And I don't think it happens enough. Mm, yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being with us and all your thoughts. We're going to um, go to a quick song break. We're going to listen to Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Ooh, and um, we'll be back. Okay, we're back. This is Indigo Radio. You're listening to uh, WBEW.org is where it's streaming. And we are on here every Sunday at noon. Um, we have Josh Davis from Groundworks that we were talking with. And we have Michaela. And um, we also have Susanna on the line. Can you hear us? Yeah. All right, great. Um, and today we've been talking about housing as public health and how 
Mm. Housing is not just about a basic need. It is a basic need, but it's one that uh, is connected to so many other th parts of our lives and our ability to be healthy humans and be part of the society. Um, Susanna has been a housing organizer for many years. I'll let you tell us how many years, Susanna. And can you introduce <laughs> yourself more and tell us about your work? Sure. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I um, have been a community organizer in New York focusing on tenants' rights and affordable housing for about the last 10 years. Um, and a lot of the tenant organizing in New York, what it focuses on is tenants that live in privately owned housing. So large buildings, 20 to 100 units, where folks are organizing to live with dignity and respect. So that looks like um, fighting harassment, um, looks like fighting for decent housing conditions, fighting repairs, fighting illegal rent increases, fighting for safe housing, et cetera. So folks organize tenants associations and buildings, kind of like unions. So doing that for, for many years, and, and one of the things that led to where I work now was tenants talking about the what housing court looked like and the struggle that was housing court, not just evictions, but also feeling intimidated, feeling patronized, um, feeling confused by the housing court system, and that's one of the things that led us to the campaign um, to win right to counsel. And so can you just tell us what is housing court and why might you go there? Yeah, so housing court, um, it actually used to be a part of the, it's part of the civil court system um, in New York City. A lot of cities across the country have housing courts or civil courts. Some cities um, have justice of the pieces. And essentially, housing court is a place where, at least in New York, where landlords sue tenants to take away their homes. Well, um, yeah. And so they can do that. There are legal procedures to do that. Either they're suing you because you haven't paid rent or they're suing you because you violated um, some section of your lease, like noise complaints, et cetera. Um, for example, in public housing, if you've been arrested, that's a violation of your lease. Um, and so, you know, housing court is a place that tenants can actually sue landlords also. They can, at least in New York, you have the right to sue your landlord because the landlord is responsible to maintain your apartment, but the vast majority of tenants don't do that, in part because of how landlords have controlled the housing courts for so many years. So in New York, 97% of all of the cases in housing courts are, initi are initiated by landlords. And I'm talking about a lot of cases, over 300,000 cases a, a year that landlords bring against tenants. That's about a million families a year just in New York City. Wow. And the court, the thing to know about the court, too, is that, like, um, you would expect your tenant, you choose to show up and, and fight your landlord who's suing you. You go to the court, you might expect that you'd speak to a judge or some, you know, arbitrator of justice or somebody who can balance the laws. But in fact, what happens is you end up in the hallways negotiating with the lawyer of the landlord. And everything happens in the hallways and people are screaming your name and you have to talk about personal details and confidential details and you're and you're almost threatened in that space and sometimes very um, clearly threatened in that space uh, and that's really how housing court has functioned since it was created in the 70s in New York City and that's kind of what we were trying to interrupt so you you know we when I was working in the Bronx we released a report about just the Bronx housing court that looked at uh, we collected a thousand surveys, we did focus groups, we did observations, and half of the tenants that we surveyed never even spoke to a judge. 
So it really is, from our perspective, you know, it's about, it's about power, it's about race, it's about gender. It really was about how displacement happens and looking at housing court as a real center of displacement, where of all the families that are evicted every year in housing court, at least 50%, some studies say 80% of those families wouldn't have been evicted if they had attorneys. And that's really what we were trying to interrupt and shift and change. Not just to stop um, evictions, but also to transform the nature of that court. Well, you won. Yes, we won. <laughs> I know when I heard on Democracy Now, I was like, go, Susanna. The campaign. <laughs> the right to counsel. Um, yeah. So, and on that same Democracy Now clip, it's the a study that um, from the eviction lab that Anna talked about earlier. I don't know if you were listening, but. Um, they, in it, they, the man explains that eviction is not just caused by poverty, that it also creates mm-hmm. poverty. Um, mm-hmm. And can you talk about that in relation to the right to counsel? You talked about it a little bit, but also and your other work in the community, because I know you do other things. But how do you see yeah. lose, losing your housing as a creation of poverty? Yeah, so I think we have to remember that housing is a home. And... When you live in a home, you're connected to a lot of things. It's um, about where your kids go to school, at least in New York City. Often you're zoned for different schools. It's about how far your commute is to work. It's about how you know your neighbors. Um, and it's a lot about stability, like in, you know, where you go shopping, where you get your food, where you have networks that support your life. And so when you are, and, and also we need to remember, I think, that evictions are, are very violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right to counsel, you know, was the first law in the country to make it a right to have an eviction defense, right? A uh, right to have an attorney to defend your home. Um, but that doesn't stop all evictions, right? It will mm-hmm. drastically reduce the number of evictions, but all evictions are violent. The fact that that's how we deal with the fact that people can't pay rent, but by forcibly removing them from their homes and putting them on their streets is a real reflection of the larger housing crisis that we're in. Um, but so what happens, you know, when you're evicted is ha- at least half of all folks that are evicted in New York go into the shelter system. Um, if you live in the Bronx, you're probably going into the shelter in Staten Island. Mm. Um, That's far. Yeah, really far. Shelters are incredibly um, unsafe. They're incredibly regulated. There are curfews. There's you know, there's been different movements to have a lot of requirements about what it means to be in a shelter, whether that's, you know, working, et cetera. Um, a lot of people have to put their stuff into storage. You can't put it, you can't bring all your stuff into the shelter. Um, and often when you're evicted, you know, what Matt Desmond's book, Evicted, really looks at is um, he, he talks about how it takes at least five years for people to be back to the economic place that they were before they were evicted. Oh my goodness. Um, that you end up in debt because you're paying for storage or you're most likely you're going to move into some, into an apartment that's less affordable than the place that you were living in at that time. You have a longer commute. You have to move your kids out of school. Um, and the other thing that I think his book does a good job of talking about is that when we think, you mentioned health before, like when we think about health, it's also about our emotional health, um, that it's incredibly, incredibly anxiety-producing to go through thinking about what it's like to lose your home and your place where you raise your kids, you know, the place where you gave birth, the place where you have all these memories. And so the anxiety and the stress of evictions also is a precursor to suicide. 
It's a leading cause of people going to the emergency room. All of that um, are factors that push people deeper into poverty. Yeah, I had a friend who was homeless for a long time, finally got an apartment, Mm -hmm. but then the, the landlord wouldn't fix the heat. And so actually I remember going over there one day, this is in the Bay Area, and it was freezing. She was like, the heat doesn't work. Her dad was like over there trying to fix it. And she mm. finally got um, a, a place and she moved across the bay and then she couldn't get to work on time. Like she had to take her son wow. to school and she couldn't get to work on time. So then she lost. So she yes. finally got a new place and then she lost her job. And so it's like yeah. this endless. Yeah. Like boot. And on. one of the. Yeah. And like one of the reasons, like I'm sure. You know, it makes you, because housing is so precarious, like it's so hard to find a place that's safe or a place that you can afford, you don't want to make the landlord pissed off. So, like, he should, of course, provide heat, but what is she going to do? She's going to call the city, she's going to complain, then he might evict her. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly, like, taking risks and making those assessments, and that's one of the reasons we fought so hard for Right to Counsel was to help give, like, help protect people and help take away a tool of retaliation from the landlord. Um, so that folks could more easily fight for their rights. Because denial of repairs is a form of harassment, and it's also a way that landlords make money. Like, that's them taking money that they should put into the building. Like, they take your rent, they should put it into the building, and instead they put it into their pockets. Susanna, I have a, this is Anna, I have a a question that I'm wondering you can also speak to. Uh, In 2008, with the housing market crash, the mm-hmm. companies took over housing markets. So that's another thing that these large companies, and some of the names of these are, I was looking this up, companies like Invitation Homes or Starwood Waypoint Homes, and they're backed by Wall Street firms. And mm-hmm. so you have this uh, thing where it's going from landlords to rather big uh, companies that are now managing homes. And for instance, mm-hmm. they talked about Sacramento County and Invitation Homes is the largest private landlord and owns more properties than anyone. I was mm-hmm. wondering um, your knowledge or thoughts around that and how that impacts in your city, New York City. Oh, my word. Yeah, it's everywhere. And that really is a trend that, that started happening um, in New York, but also globally, really in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and so you have kind of waves where... the ownership of homes is consolidated and housing as an investment is, um, is shored up by larger companies. Like as we've lost manufacturing, as we lost other Mm. forms of commodities, investors have bought housing because it's a, it's a stable commodity. It's something you always need. It's similar to folks like buying land for food or buying air rights or buying, you know, privatizing water. Housing is kind of like that in cities um, where you have a trend of folks moving increasingly to cities um, for work. And so housing becomes a steady and stable investment. And over time, the folks that we are fighting against in New York and in cities everywhere are transnational global corporations um, that have investments all over the place. I think in that Democracy Now! clip, they talked about Blackstone. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so we, and they own properties. You know, there was an action that we did in New York and uh, there were protests against properties um, owned by Blackstone here, and at the same time, protests in Spain, who have the same uh, uh, target enemy, rather. Um, and that's a very real trend. The other thing, and we, in New York we call it predatory equity, where it's this business model where investors 
at Target, low-income housing, often housing that's regulated, where rents are regulated by the state. We still have a system of rent regulation in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that's a struggle nationwide, where folks are fighting for the government to regulate increases in privately owned um, rental housing. And we have a pretty strong system in New York. And so investors target that housing, buy it, say it's not maximizing its um, potential, and have a have an eviction plan, and they and they literally write it into their business plan that they're going to try to turn over thirty percent of their units every year. And that was another reason why right to counsel was important. It was trying to interrupt that business model. And the other trend that's really difficult is that a lot of the money that's backing this business model is not it, it's not banks. So it's venture capitalist mm-hmm. investment firms. Yeah. And they're not regulated. They're not regulated by the FDIC. They're not bound to the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, you often don't know their names. You know, you don't know where they live. <laughs> so right. it becomes really, really important that our struggle is global and that we're making connections where these trends are happening because those same people are investing in privatization of education. They're investing mm-hmm. in a lot of other struggles. So it's across the issue. board. The corporatization of everything, even schools. Sometimes some schools don't have principals anymore; they have CEOs. <laughs> so yeah. it's creeping into every aspect of our lives. Yeah, that's very true. Suzanne, that's yeah. uh, really uh, helpful information, and I, I think it's great that you're yeah, making a bigger connection to the global housing crisis for people. Uh, one question we had for you is when you look forward and, and you've done a lot of this and been working for years there, what do you see on the landscape for people who are housing insecure in the country? What would you like to see moving forward or what do we need to do? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I think we need to re-envision how we understand what housing is, how we understand and define what communities are. I think there's a lot of great work happening around community control, so not just community ownership, but real control around, you know, how are we making decisions about who is housed and how they're housed, um, how we distribute resources around housing and safety, things like that. Um, There's a movement around community land trust nationally, but it's gained a lot of momentum recently in New York. Um, And there's a lot of work to limit the amount of profit landlords are allowed to make through these rent control nationally initiatives. Um, And right to counsel, you know, it's not just about stopping evictions. It's about saying we're going to fight to stay, that we need to fight to stay, but also to build. Um, And we can't kind of create the city that we need if we aren't here. So we kind of need to do both. Like our folks, friends in Boston, close to you guys, talk about um, the sword and the shield that you you need to build your shield to protect yourself, to, cre- to shore up defenses. Um, I think we need to, to link our defense work, that there's um, eviction blockades, eviction defense networks should be connected to immigration defense networks, should be uh, connected to networks that are looking at police raids also, um, and the policing of black and brown folks. I think we need to connect a lot of that work more and then think about, like, okay, how can we, create different alternatives. Um, I was just thinking so, when you were saying connecting things is uh, that we haven't spent much time on this today, but talking about prisons and how um, prisons, if someone doesn't have 
housing or place to go, oftentimes people are stuck in prison and jail because they won't release them if they don't have a place to go. There's that problem. Well, and then you can't get an then you can't get an apartment. Also, exactly, you can't right. get a lease. Right. So there's yeah. a couple like um, there's a couple things to that, right? So sometimes they're released to the street. Sometimes they're released to a community that is not their community if they've been moved. And then again, what you said is that then if you have a felony on your record, it's going to be a very hard time finding housing. So that's also linked to the housing crisis too, is is prisons. Yeah, of course. And actually, Matt Desmond talks about that in his book. He talks about it as um, uh, women, like black women. You know, so men, are, black men are locked up and black women are locked out. Mm. So the eviction crisis mm. is really, because women have to be on the leases now. More and more, as, as men and black and brown men are put into the prison system, more and more women have to be on the leases for homes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and if, if you walk into any housing court in New York, it's almost all women. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, I think, like, uh, we need to do a, a part of the challenge is that, like, it's so hard, like, the, like the, the challenge of getting down to your lobby to fight your landlord, to take that risk, all, it's so much work to get your heat back on. It's so much work to make sure your lease is correct. And, you know, often we're choosing between fighting for my home or fighting for my kid's school or mm-hmm. fighting the prison system. So it's, it's really hard to actually find time to connect those struggles because every struggle takes so much energy. Um, but I think it's incredibly essential. That speaks to me. I think that is really true. And I keep on thinking that there's two thoughts I have. And one is that people talk all the time as if profit is normal and natural mm-hmm. and that everyone has a right to profit and people mm. will say, well, capitalism is bad, but I'm not against capitalism and I'm not against profit and I'm not against private property. Um, but to say that all these things that we're talking about are manifestations of those, the existence of those things of private property and privately held um, firms and all kinds of things. But also that I, I'm trying to understand also that what is the housing crisis? When you say that, what do you mean? Because I feel like there's enough places for people to live. So what yeah. is the housing crisis? <laughs> but the housing crisis is actually exactly what you said. It's, it's, so we have a saying here, I hear, uh, I mean, in the housing world, we say, um, you know, the housing crisis isn't that the system is corrupt or broken. The housing crisis is how the system works. Mm. Um, and, and it's a reflection of, like, it's what's produced by the privatization of our homes. It's what's produced by the model that housing is a commodity that's bought and sold as opposed to um, somebody's home. And so in New York, there are enough city-owned vacant housing, like units, to house homeless people, right? So we have mm-hmm. we have... <laughs> take the movement Take Back the Land talks about how um, we don't have homeless people, we have peopleless homes, and we need to move people into peopleless homes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's that's true of so many things. I mean, think about, like, food and um, insecurity. We have enough food. We just don't distribute it equally. Um, because what's happening is landlords who, and even the city, right, they're looking at what is this, like, how much can I make from this land and this props? I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to warehouse it. I'm going to let it sit vacant in a neighborhood that I'm hoping is gentrifying. Mm-hmm. I'm engaged in rezoning it so that it does gentrify. 
and then I'm going to make bank three years from now, and I'm just going to let it sit vacant, and that's totally perfectly legal and fine, because it, you know what's legal is not what's just, and wow. that is what produces um, this kind of inequity around people being allowed to make money off of housing, which is what makes people homeless. Um, and I think, yeah, that's uh, the crux of it, you know. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if you have any final word. That's a great final word. But if you have any <laughs> other ones, I think that we could probably keep talking forever because I'm like picturing all these vacant buildings I used to see in Brooklyn, skyscrapers yeah, that no one right? can afford. And there's no a one... lot around Brattleboro. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. You know, everywhere, everywhere. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, I would say that, you know, there are models that are really inspiring. So folks in Brazil, what they did was they were able to change their constitution to say, if, you know, land isn't producing a social value, the government has to redistribute it. And they didn't wait for the government to redistribute it. They made a map of the vacant mm -hmm. um, properties, and they went in, and they occupied them, and they took them. Mm -hmm. And then they got ownership of them, and then they collectively control them. And I think they have about a million people living in housing because of that struggle in Brazil. And obviously, they have a huge fight in Brazil. They're facing similar uh, right-wing shifts like we are. Um, but I do think, like, back to your point, Michaela, like, we really have to, you know, the stuff around the right to profit, um, the right to... Um, uh, predict a profit even is actually in our constitution. And mm -hmm. so often when we fight or we try to pass policies that limit landlords' profit, they go back to the constitution and say, no, that's a taking. That's, you can't, my profit, my right to profit is protected in that governing document. Um, and so I think we have to really redefine uh, who should have a right to control housing and land. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and look to inspiration from other places. People are doing it. People are doing it here and in this country, um, too, in Detroit and other cities. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's lessons to be learned, but we have to actually go back to fundamentals about who, who makes decisions and who has the right to land and housing and how we control it and not accept that homelessness is normal. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's created, and people are making a lot of money from it. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Susanna. Do you want to plug your new job? Tell us about it for one second. No. <laughs> yeah, so the Right to Counsel Coalition. So, you know, uh, we won this new law and um, because we have a grounding in, in this understanding of, of the nature of the struggle, we don't stop when we win laws. We have to keep organizing. And so... I am coordinating a citywide coalition that's looking at the implementation of this law um, and how we use it as an organizing tool. Um, it's going to be phased in over five years um, in order to give the legal services providers time to hire attorneys, to staff up, to train them. And so we're really looking at how we train those attorneys, how are we monitoring what's happening in housing court, how are we pushing back against the landlords retaliating. Obviously, they're not happy about right to counsel. Um, so we're really looking with working with community groups and neighborhoods across the city that um, have this new right and thinking about how we can use right to counsel as an organizing tool. So if you knew you had the right to an attorney to defend yourself when your landlord was suing you, what would you do? Would you go on, on rent strike? Would you sue your landlord to take over the building? Like, how can we really use this new law to build tenant power and kind of redefine what we accept? 
So that's very exciting. And there are other cities nationally that are also looking at right to counsel. Um, Boston, Newark, San Francisco actually has it on their ballot. They're going to be voting for right to counsel in June, which is really exciting. They might really? be the second city. Uh-oh. Yeah, Uh-oh. you should vote. I'll, I'll work on that, and I'll work on my whole family. <laughs> okay. We're San Franciscans. Oh, thank you. Anyone listening, if you have any family in San Francisco, please encourage them to vote. <laughs> I think the vote is June 4th. I could be wrong. I'll yeah. investigate. Susanna, <laughs> okay. thank you so much thank for um, spending time with us on your Sunday and talking about this very important issue. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was uh, Su- Susanna Blankly. Blankly. And Right to Council Coalition. Yeah, so we'll put up links on our, our website, too, to both that and the eviction lab. And I think it's so important what you brought in, what she was bringing in, is what does this economic system of capitalism need in order to survive and keep going? And it is based on profit and then thinking about the consequences of profit and privatization, which we right now are looking through the lens of housing and health, but that is a, a consequence of it. Yeah. Michaela? Heartbreaking. I don't know. I just, it's infuriating um, to think that we're taught that this is normal, that some people have to be on the bottom for, and others be in the top, and yeah. that's how a society should be. Um, and we see that people are not accepting that. They're not, they're saying no more. And, and I think that sometimes when people are opposing the way life is right now in this moment in history, people think that we're coming after you, we're coming after your BMW, or we don't want you to have your house in the hill. And that's not the point. The point is that that BMW or that house on the hill has consequences for other humans. And what are those consequences? And are you willing to accept those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, of making the links between our lives uh, one thing that before we go out here is that Brattleboro Solidarity is having a May Day, Labor Day event on uh, May 1st. And we will be at the Brooks Memorial Library. Uh, shout out to Star Latronica, a good friend of Brattleboro Solidarity, uh, director of the library there. So we are doing, it's called Voices of Working People. And it is Tuesday, May 1st, 6 to 8 p.m. at the library. Soup and bread will be served, and community members will represent historical figures from Howard Zinn's Voices of People's History. And after the dramatic readings, we invite anyone to come and share the stories of labor and labor struggles. So check that out. We have that on Facebook. There's flyers around town. Cool. And, Michaela, anything else before we go out? Courage to all the freedom fighters. I know it's hard and all of us in our daily struggles. Keep your head up. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that's, and we're actually going to go out with Tupac, Tupac, keep your head up. Oh, I like, all right, I like that. <laughs> you thanks didn't for listening. That, I didn't know that. <laughs> in the, thanks for listening to Indigo Radio. This is 107.7 LP, your community radio station. And we'll see you next week.
please don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up. Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up. And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him. And if you can't learn to love it, you should leave him. Cause sister, you don't need him. And I ain't trying to gash up, I just call him how I see You know what makes me unhappy? that. When brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a pastor. And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and I came from a woman. I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women? I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, be real to our women. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies.